Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast today. My name is Terry Fletcher. We are at the 242nd episode of the CodeCast Podcast. And boy, we are really gaining listeners and gaining speed. And I can't tell you how happy I am about that. You know, I'm getting into the almost, well, let's see, 2017. So 18, 19, 20, 20, 22, almost five years. How great is that? Just to be able to say you've been with your podcast for five years. Um, Looking at uh, my numbers right now, 346,000 downloads for 346, 228 actually. So thank you again to everybody who has found the podcast, listens to it, refers it out, and just gives me such positive feedback. And just a reminder, if you feel like it, please drop me a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Amazon or anywhere you listen. If it's YouTube, it just really helps to keep us on air. And also, I like to hear what what you think. So I appreciate that for sure. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, this week, I'm going to visit the area that I don't really talk much about, but I'm getting a lot of inquiries on it and a lot of payer inquiries about it. So I really think it would, or it is going to be a good podcast topic. And that is HCC or hierarchical uh, condition category coding. So this is basically, if you want kind of the rundown of this, what is hierarchical condition category coding or HCC coding? Well, there, uh, there's a hierarchy to coding when we talk about risk adjustment. And this is a model that um, Medicare created and initiated in 2004. And it's really becoming kind of the, the value-based model, I'm air quoting, if you will, for a lot of other payers as well. But it really talks about using scores or risk, what they call a RAF score, a risk adjustment factor um, to estimate future healthcare costs for patients under Medicare Advantage plans. So they're Medicare, but they join these managed care plans and Medicare pays those managed care plans based on this score of active code. So active conditions or chronic services. So, and you've probably seen also in the um, the OIG and on LinkedIn and some of the, the mails lately that they're really starting to crack down on HCC coding because it relies on the ICD-10 CM coding to assign the risk scores and it's really easy to overutilize, overcompensate, overcompensate and also to leave codes in to get more money. And so you have to be careful with that because each HCC, and that's going to be the acronym I'm going to talk about, is mapped to a specific ICD-10 code. So along with demographic factors such as age, gender, um, and certain insurance company, um, they have their own risk factor uh, information. They use an algorithm and they can use this score to predict costs for a particular patient. So for example, a patient with few serious health conditions could be expected to have an average medical cost for a given time. However, a patient with multiple chronic conditions, active, would be expected to have higher health care utilization and costs. So why is this important? Okay, so the hierarchical condition category helps communicate patient complexity and paint kind of a picture of the whole patient, in addition to help to predict healthcare resource utilization. So those RAF scores are used to risk adjust 
quality and cost metrics. That's what the risk adjust is. What is the risk on this patient and how do we adjust it based on their score to determine how much they're going to cost us? And by accounting for differences in patient complexity, quality and cost performance can be more appropriately measured. And so, and it's really because we're moving so far into value-based payments, that's why risk adjustment is playing such an important role here. So value-based payment arrangements, they use a practice's performance on cost and quality metrics to determine revenue, and sometimes not just practice revenue, but physician revenue. So that's why risk adjustment can have a direct impact on overall practice revenue. When Now, when risk scores do not accurately reflect the patient complexity, it could appear that the patient had higher cost and lower, lower quality outcomes than would be expected. So in some payment models, I've even seen this could cause a practice to fall below quality and cost performance targets and miss out on some of the opportunity for sharing savings. So there's also the capitation model, and that's a practice's payment rate is based on a patient or a practice's average score. So for example, there's one in primary care and it's called primary care first. The population-based payment is calculated using an average risk adjustment um, score of the patient's attributed beneficiaries. So practices with more complex patients based on RAF scores receive a higher BPP. So basically as it is expected that their patients will require more resources and have higher utilization. So you can kind of see there's, <laughs> You always follow the money. You've heard me say that so many times. And this is where OIG has stepped in and said, can somebody, you know, tell these people how to do this correctly or at least give them an understanding why it's so important that these scores are calculated appropriately? Otherwise, you could be overscoring your patient or underscoring your patient. And either way, it's it's not good. So let me just kind of explain an example of a risk adjustment scoring. So let's say you have a 70-year-old female patient with type 2 diabetes, no complications, hypertension, and a body mass index, let's say, of 38.2. Okay, so demographics, age, and gender. So for that patient being 70 years old and female, the RAF is going to be 0.323. And there, there's actually the risk adjustment scores you can find on the internet. Just Google it. Also, it has on the CMS website. So the ICD-10 code for type 2 diabetes without complication is E11.9. And so you would not have an ICD-10 for the, um, the age and gender. And then your RAF score would be 0.105. Primary hypertension essential, the I-10 code, zero RAF score. Body mass index of 38.0 to 38.9 for an adult. Zero, and that's a Z code, Z68.38, patients within um, an average limit. And so the total risk on that patient would be 0.428, okay? So let's take the, the same patient, okay, but give them type 2 diabetes with diabetic polyneuropathy, hypertension, morbid obesity with a BMI of 38.2, okay, so we just did a body mass index instead of giving them morbid obesity as well, and congestive heart failure, let's say, okay, so we, we didn't actually explain some of the details of that patient. So now we have demographics, age and gender is the same, that would be 0.323. The diabetes is a little different now, so it went from, for the E11.9, went 105, it went E11.42, 
for type 2 diabetes with diabetic polyneuropathy at 0.302. Talk about almost a triple bump on that. Essential hypertension, didn't get anything, same as before. But let's say that we're putting in the body mass index in, in addition to the morbid severe obesity on a patient. Well, it's explaining why you're putting in that Z code now. Otherwise, it just looks like it's an adult that has a range. Now you get 0.250, 0 0.250. And then heart failure, unspecified, includes congestive heart failure, not otherwise specified. I-50.9 gets 0 0.331. And then disease interaction, so diabetes and congestive heart failure together, you get another 0 0.121. And these are just samples based on the you know, um, 2021 CMS HEC model values and the 2022 ICD-10 codes, which actually become effective in 21. Your total optimized risk on this patient is 1.327 as opposed to 0.428. So do you see the difference there of what could make a difference as far as that, that RAF score? So you also have to look at some of the, um, the things with risk adjustment. One of the common critiques of the HEC model is it doesn't account for other factors that could impact the patient's health and well-being and such as related health related social needs and we are finding now that they that some of the um, social determinants of health are going to be considered for risk adjustment models which i think is very important especially when patients aren't able to take their medications because they can't afford it that's a really big deal now we do have some z code options that help to collect some individual data on patients and those are really around the Z55 to Z65. And those are for health hazards related to, uh, related to socioeconomic and so psychosocial circumstances. Whether and how Z codes will interact with risk adjustment, we're still trying to figure that out um, because currently they don't have values associated with them, but they are, some payers have started to require practices to report them, which is a positive step. So we're, we're going in the right direction. But the biggest thing that you have to keep in mind when you're looking at risk adjustment, this resets every year for a patient. So practices need to report active diagnoses annually, even chronic conditions if you're actively treating that. So a wellness visit is a good opportunity to capture all appropriate diagnoses. Preventative screenings, such as a, a screening of risk factors for depression, can also aid in identifying additional diagnoses that could contribute to that patient's risk. But HCCs are additive, so it's important to code all conditions that coexist at the time of the encounter or that could affect that patient's care or treatment. Now, this is where you want to make sure OIG isn't knocking on your door. Conditions that were previously treated and no longer exist should not be coded. History codes can be used as secondary codes if the condition or family history impacts current care or influence of treatment. Think cancer. You know, once that cancer and they're cancer free or that's been gone, now you have to go to personal history of, and we've still seen patients that have had, you know, double mastectomies and, and are cancer free. And it says it right in the report that are having these conditions still coded as cancer instead of personal history of or other disorders of. Be careful with that. So documentation must also support the diagnosis reported. That's why also with our new 2021 ENM guidelines, they really focused on the initial element of medical decision-making as problems addressed. So a good rule of thumb is to document, they call it MEAT, M-E-A-T, meet principles for HCCs. 
So if the diagnosis is monitored, evaluated, assessed, or treated, meet, diagnoses then can be included. If they're not supported by documentation, they'll not be held up in an audit. And you have to also comply with ICD-10-CM coding guidelines. So you don't want to add anything that you're not actively treating. So are you monitoring it, evaluating, assessing it, or treating it? I have some oncology practices that are getting crazy with everything, and they're not treating it. Now, could it have some kind of... Um, impact on that? Yes, but they're not documenting that impact on that patient that maybe is getting radiation or uh, getting some kind of um, chemo. So you have to make sure that the medical record is specific. You code to the highest level of specificity within your diagnoses and ensure the diagnoses are properly sequenced. So some things to consider when you're selecting your diagnosis code. Type and underlying cause. So is it diabetes type 1 or 2? due to underlying condition, or is it post-procedural? Is it due to a genetic defect? So type and then underlying cause. Control status, okay? So is it controlled, well-controlled, uncontrolled? Severity. The site and location, remember, now we have to include laterality. That is, we've always included it kind of as a lazy, oh, we get to. Now you have to. That was in the new general guidelines for ICD-10 for 2022. Associated comorbid conditions. So just listing diabetes on there, or listing that the patient has a comorbidity is not enough. If you're treating it, if you're addressing it, if you're evaluating it, or if it's been assessed and it also has a link to your patient's current condition, then you get to include it. If not, don't even do it. And then substance abuse or exposure. If there's any kind of uh, opioid dis, you know, abuse or any alcohol abuse, if the patient's, um, if there's tobacco abuse, which is the, the smoking, then um, that can be a problem. I just was giving some information this morning on a physician that I did an audit for for GI, and a lot of the patients were smokers. And that's a really big deal because um, that can really affect the colon, especially patients who are having recurrent polyps. Just takes, you know, one time for that just to attack the intestinal area, and now this is a problem. Another one, again, smokers, and I'm not trying to pick on them, but that is a really big deal when it comes to chronic conditions and how it can affect um, the morbidity on a patient and mortality. There was a patient that had peripheral vascular disease, a lot of pain in her lower extremities, and the doctor said, if you don't quit smoking, you're, you might have to have an amputation below the knee. That's how bad it is. You're constricting those vessels. So those kinds of things, also the medical record must contain a legible signature with the credentials. That's what you're looking at when you're dealing with your hierarchy codes. You always want to make sure that you're clear, that they're active conditions, that you follow the, the meet, and that you also make sure that the codes that are no longer appropriate and the conditions that are no longer active are not included when you're reporting to for your RAF scores. This is something I wanted to comment on from the OIG when the, the last thing that they published in the last couple of weeks, when they were talking about the HCC diagnosis codes used in the Medicare Advantage or Risk Adjustment Plans, remember these are federally funded. So not only if you incorrectly report, you can also be tagged for a false claim act. So um, you have to be very, very careful for the appropriate use of federal funds. So many HCC coding audits performed by the ORG, OIG, they're focused on Medicare Advantage organizations. So for example, like Humana, that was tagged with 197.7 million in overpayments. 
Um, the DOJ has filed lawsuits against healthcare providers in violation of the False Claim Act for unsupported HCC diagnosis code. Another recent example is a health system that received a portion of payments for submitting HCC diagnosis code that were not supported in the patient's clinical notes. And as a result, the organization had to pay back $90 million and were required to enter into a five-year corporate integrity agreement with the United States HHS, so the Department of Health and Human Services, an Office of Inspector General. So what they're looking at here is they're basically saying you need to have a compliance program and guidance, not just if you're a hospital, but if you are a physician's practice that sees sick patients that have ongoing chronic problems and look at the jump in Medicare Advantage plans. So they're, the enrollees have increased 47% over the last five years, and it's just going to continue. So you really need to make sure that uh, you are accurate, that you look at pre-bill focused audits. I would do pre-billed um, and call us if you want us to take a look at that. But you need to make sure that you are looking before it goes anywhere pre-build focus audits of Medicare Advantage patient coding, review for diagnosis, supporting documentation, so that you are not tagged under a false claim act. I'm very concerned about this when I start to see some of this information because, you know, hospitals are starting to get a little proactive, but I'm not seeing it in physician practices. And it's important to see it in physician practices because it reflects the accurate clinical picture of the patient proper payment and proper use of federal funds. So I I can't tell you enough or talk about this enough, how important it is to really look at your HCC HCC coding, so your hierarchy coding as a project, as something that you have to be more accurate than anything else you do in the practice because it gives a total health um, profile to the patient and the picture but it also, because it's tied to money and tied to federal funds, it is it is being scrutinized right now. So I think that's where Medicare thinks they're going to, HHS thinks they're going to get back a lot of the money they've been pushing out. So anyway, that's what I want you to take a look at. Um, we're going to probably have a, a webinar soon for that. Also, for some of you have asked, you know, where can you get ongoing uh, coding questions and everything? I wanted to explain the My Coding Corner service. I think I've had some people join uh, recently that thought it was something maybe it wasn't. So, and I'm happy to have everybody join, anybody join you'd like. We've been around um, as far as having this membership for uh, 28 years now. And um, we have a lot of people that have stayed in with us, a lot of practices. It is for um, the professional side, so the profi side. But it is for, it's, it's kind of a troubleshooting service. So you can email anytime you want to and just say, hey, I have this claim I couldn't get paid. Can you help me with an appeal? Or um, can you just take a look at this? Did I code this correctly? Um, or um, I'm having a doctor ask me this new code and I can't find it anywhere. Can we code for it? So there are certain services that, what th- that's what that's for. It's basically a, a Q&A when you get stuck. What I've seen a couple of practices use it for is as I'm kind of being used as their coding companion. So verifying all of their codes as they do everything. Can you look at this, 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 this four or five, six times a day? That's not what this is for. First of all, we don't have the staffing for that, but that's not what it's for, especially based on $1,200 or $1,800 a year, depending on if you get the executive membership or or the regular. So, but it is something that a lot of people enjoy to kind of have, you know, me and my and our staff in the back pocket if they run into a, a coding problem or a coding question that you need assistance with or a billing problem or help with, a, you know, um, a, an appeal or something like that. 
So hopefully you know what it is. Please read, you know, on my website at terryfletcher.net. And if it's something you feel like you could use in your practice where you just need an outside person to give you insight, um, that is a specialty coder, a subject matter expert in your specialty, then definitely, you know, knock on our door for that. But if it's, if you're looking for somebody to hold your hand through coding for every single thing you code, that's not what it's for. So I just wanted to just put it out there because I think there's a little bit of a, a misperception of what it is. Okay, everyone. So my personal tidbit this week is, did you know how hot it is in Arizona? Oh my gosh. So we went out to visit my daughter and we had a great weekend, great time, just about four and a half hours from where I live in Southern California, but it got up to 107. And I don't know if you've ever heard the word fought, but it's hot and you can just guess what the F is for in front of it. Oh my goodness. It was terrible. And where I'm living now, um, a little bit inland from Laguna before, and it was 94 and we got home and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so cool here. It's glorious. Shoot, that was so hot. Anyway, for those of you thinking of living in uh, Arizona, it is the corner of hell. That's all I'm saying. I'm allowed to say that, by the way, it's a podcast. It's I don't get censored for that. <laughs> but it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. So uh, definitely interesting for any of my uh, friends or colleagues or people who are in Arizona. Bless you for, for putting up with that heat. I don't know how you do it. We actually walked into a restaurant and it was it was cool, but it was so hot outside. And people had on sweaters. I'm like, what are you doing? It is so crazy. So, oh my goodness. But um, I do like the the area. It's just oh that heat is terrible. But we had a good good visit. So I'm I'm looking forward to her coming out next time. Anyway, I hope everyone has a really good week and make it a great day. And we'll talk to you next time on the Codecast podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information on medical coding, billing auditing and compliance, including how to hire Terry. Follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer Assassin Music.